And we're in Romans chapter 5 this morning, the second half of chapter 5. And you can see from your bulletin, uh, we're talking about original sin. Woohoo! Imagine you're walking by the courthouse and one was just let out uh, and sentenced in in court. And so a young boy is handcuffed and he's, you, you hear that he's being led off to life in prison for murder, for robbery, for treason. And you ask the crowd, what evidence was there that this little boy committed these crimes? And the response you hear is, even if he didn't do anything wrong, he still deserves this sentence because his grandfather committed these crimes And this grandson, along with all the other descendants, must pay the punishment for what the grandfather did. You'd think, that doesn't seem fair. Well, is this an example of how God doles out punishment and justice? Some Christians would say yes, and they would cite Romans 5.12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. Death spread to everyone because of Adam's sin. They would say that sin took place because of our great-great-grandfather Adam. Sin resulted in death, both physical death, which we all will experience one day, and spiritual death, separation from God. And death spread to all of the human race. Uh, We're all guilty of Adam's original sin and must suffer the same punishment. Others would argue, no, this is not how God acts. In fact, they would say, we are all punished for our own sin. We're not punished for Adam's sin. And they would cite the same verse in verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. We all sinned, and we're all guilty of our own sin. Well, what does that mean? Well, we all suffer the consequences of Adam's sin by having to endure our lives in a sinful and broken world. Okay, consequences versus punishment. But either way, how does this seem fair? Why should should all of humanity suffer the consequences of of some yo-yo back thousands of years ago, ate ate of some fruit? Why would we, we have to suffer those consequences? Well, there are no less than six views of how people interpret the original sin and how it impacts us today. And I'm not going to cover those six views. You can Google it, or those six views. Instead, I'm going to focus on the one that makes most sense to me, and that is the historic view of the original sin, which I feel is the most biblical, which says that we're all impacted by Adam's first sin and we've all inherited a sinful nature from him because he's our corporate head of the human race. However, we're not punished as individuals for Adam's sin. We're punished for our own sin, for everyone sinned. God clearly states in his word elsewhere that each person is responsible for their own sin and they're not punished for the sins of their parents or grandparents, or ancestors. Ezekiel 18, God says, For all people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule, 
The person who sins is the one who will die. Verse 19, what, you ask? Doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins, which was the common notion? No, for if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for their parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. We'll all experience the consequences of Adam's sin, but there's a big difference between receiving consequences or receiving punishment and experiencing consequences. For example, on May 11th, 2000, a lady opened an email, and the email simply read, or the uh, email, it, it read, I love you. She clicked it open, seemed innocent enough, even romantic. And when she clicked open the message, the so-called love bug was born. And with lightning speed, this bug raced around the world, bringing politics and business to a halt. It was a deadly computer virus which affected multi-millions of computer software programs to crash. One virus, so much contamination. Despite God warning Adam not to click on Satan's message, the lie, Adam and Eve clicked on the message with appalling consequences. And it affected all of mankind. That virus was called sin. We're all responsible for our own sins, but we also all suffer the consequences of Adam's sin. My mom and two sisters... Uh, I've told you their story before. They were raised in an orphanage, Covenant Cromwell Children's Home, because their mother abandoned them. And it would eventually affect how they, too, would parent their kids. My father came from a household with a very distant father, um, and it affected the way that he and his siblings would parent as well. One of my father's brothers, my uncle, died an alcoholic, a tragic death. A couple of my uncles died alcoholics, um, in fact, and so it goes. Consequences passed on to family members. One of my father's, uh, well, I, I should say on a positive note, though, Romans 8.28 applies here because God had his hand upon uh, these three little girls. For God works all things out for the good for those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. My grandfather would eventually meet a heartbroken young woman whose, whose wedding was called off just a couple weeks before the wedding. And so she left Jamestown, New York to go to Cromwell, Connecticut to work in the children's home just to leave her grief behind for a while. And it was there that she cared for my mom and her two sisters who introduced her to my grandfather. They were married and then subsequently they moved back to Jamestown, this woman's hometown, where these three young girls would grow up and meet their husbands who would then give birth to me and my cousins. Thank you very much. <laughs> and that's why I'm here today. So God works all things out for the good on the positive note. But having to deal with consequences of the first sin is a matter of solidarity. You see, if we get to the Jewish mindset in the Old Testament, uh, they didn't view themselves only as individuals, they saw themselves corporately as families and clans and societies and tribes and nations. 
Even today in most parts of the Middle East, people don't see themselves as individuals. They associate themselves with their tribe and their nation. And we get a glimpse of this on The Fiddler on the Roof if you've seen that movie. Whatever happens to any individual member of the tribe profoundly affects the entire tribe. Therefore, as we think of the mindset in which Romans is in context, we'll think that because of Adam's sin, it affects the whole family of humanity. And it will until Christ returns. We've all reaped the ugly consequences of Adam's fall. We all have to experience hurricanes and tornadoes and droughts. We all have to experience corruption and theft and mosquitoes and grubs. We all have to deal with dishonesty and selfishness and, and disease and death. Another example, when a hockey player commits a foul, then he has to go into the box, the penalty box, and he has to sit there for some time, and his one action affects the entire team. For the moment, from the moment of our first sin, we found ourselves on the roster of Team Adam, who committed the crime, the sin, and it affects us all corporately. Verse 15 says, For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But one may still ask, still, why is, it un- why is it so fair that I have to suffer the consequences uh, living in a messed up world that I have to live in? It isn't fair. And I would say it isn't fair that an innocent person would die because they get hit by a drunk driver. But it happens. But on the other side of the coin... It isn't fair that God would allow any one of us to be saved through Jesus Christ because mercy is not fair. But I'm still glad that God offers us his mercy and his grace. In verse 15, we read, But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Um, by the way, just a, a little tangent, you know the difference between justice, mercy, and grace? I think most of you know that justice is getting what we deserve, and we want to cry for justice, but we better not cry too loud because if we all get what we deserve, we're in a heap of trouble, right? Justice is getting what we deserve, mercy is not getting what we deserve, and grace is getting what we do not deserve. For example, when my my friend and I, when we were elementary school kids living in New York, we built a big snow fort right on the front boulevard of the street in my front yard, and we made a whole basket full of snowballs, and we just pelt cars going by. And so we just nailed this one car being driven by a teenager. Well, the teenager screeched, he pulled over, and he started yelling. We ran into my backyard, and the teenager chased us, Justice would have been that he would have given us a whooping. Mercy would have been if he refrained from giving us a whooping. And instead, grace would be he gives us two Snickers bars that we don't deserve. Unfortunately, this particular teenage driver was all about justice. (laughs) And I won't tell you the rest of the story right now. 
And then Paul now moves on to the three contrasts between Adam's sin and Christ's gift of grace. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to the first Adam and the second Adam, but here in Romans, he just refers to Adam and Christ. Um, First, the first Adam gave us sin, the second Adam gave us grace. In verse 15, um, well, verse 14 first, now Adam is a symbol of a representation of Christ who is yet to come, but there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. In verse 15, For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So we got sin on the one hand and grace on the other. The other contrast next is condemnation and justification in verse 16. As the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of the one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation But God's free gift leads to our being made right, which is justification with God, even though we're guilty of many sins. So Adam's one sin brought death and condemnation to the many. It doesn't mean just to some. It means to the many or to all. And while Christ's one gift brought forgiveness and justification or being made right to the many, this gift of his death in our place. Which leads to the third contrast. The reign of sin and death that Adam brought us to the believer's triumphal reign in life over sin that Christ brought us. In verse 17, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. Death ruled over many, or the many, over all. Prior to that sin, in Genesis 1.26, we read that God said, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. How did God make humans to be like the Holy Trinity? He made them to reign. In Genesis 1.27, they will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and livestock and all the wild animals on the earth. And the small animals that scurry along the ground, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern the earth. We were originally created to reign over the earth. We were entrusted by God to govern the world, the earth. In verse 517, we read, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. This word triumph insinuates reigning and governing, co-reigning with Christ. We are to live in triumph even over sin and death. God entrusted Adam and Eve with the responsibility to reign and have dominion over the animals, to govern the earth and to forever eat of the tree of life, to live forever. But Adam and Eve forfeited these rights and responsibilities to the tempter, the one who deceived them when they rebelled against God and they believed Satan, the serpent, and they obeyed him. And in so doing, Satan acquired the responsibility and, and the authority that Adam and Eve were given. And Satan became then the prince of the earth, the god of this world, the ruler of darkness. 
God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Well, they ate of the tree. They introduced sin and death to our world, both physical and spiritual death forevermore. But fortunately, God had a plan that would legally reverse this curse by sending the second Adam, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to earth. And he paid the price of our death by dying on the cross. He would win back that which was lost in the garden, namely our responsibility to co-reign with Christ in his kingdom and experience eternal life. And when he won it back, he gave it back to us. Well, how can we benefit from God's plan to co-reign with him, to live in triumph even over sin and death? We're told we have to take these two action steps. The first, we must receive God's gift of grace and forgive righteousness. In verse 17, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin. But like any gift, we must first receive this gift of God's righteousness and his grace if we're to experience it. But we have a choice. Think about this. In the beginning, Adam had a choice. He, he, he was given the ability to choose to not follow God. He knew God. He walked and talked with God. And he was given the choice to not follow him. But because of his decision to not follow God, everyone comes after him must choose to follow God. A choice still has to be made. Again, think of it. Adam had to choose not to follow God, but because of his decision to not follow God, everyone who comes after him must choose to follow God. So still a choice has to be made. Romans 6.23, we have a choice. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life for all who would believe him through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we read in 5.17 of Romans, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So that's the first step. I was just at a funeral yesterday, and the simple gospel was presented by one of our own, a daughter of the woman who died. And after she got done presenting the simple gospel, someone from this church in Wichita came up to her and said, Thanks for sharing what you shared because I think, I think you just preached salvation to everyone and one of those people would be me. I received Christ today. And she was ecstatic that we must receive the gift of God if we're to experience what he has for us. Uh, secondly, we must learn to live in dependence on Christ. In verse 17 even greater is God's wonderful gift of grace and I'm sorry, wonderful grace and gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. We will only experience this victory to live over sin and death and triumph over sin and death through our dependence on God's grace that we live through him, through his strength. Erwin Lutzer puts it this way, God often puts us in situations that are too much for us, 
so that we will learn that no situation is too much for him. In other words, we come to the realization that only God can turn a mess into a message, a test into a testimony, a trial into a triumph, and a victim into victory. And so we cry out to him for his intervention on our behalf. We confess our sin before him. Oh, Lord, we have been living independent of you, which is the root of all sin, and we now depend upon you. Please help us. If I prepare a sermon, and I have like three to six months before I'm to preach this sermon at a big conference, then I will write a sermon, I will memorize it, I will repeat it and practice it over and over again. I'll come up with the best jokes and illustrations, and I won't need to use any notes. I'll just stand up on the stage and pace back and forth like so many are gifted to do, and then people would perhaps applaud me afterwards because it would have been the finest sermon that I'd ever preached. But I can do all of that in the flesh. And if I do so, just trusting in myself, then people may applaud me, but it will have zero impact on the kingdom of God, on people's lives for eternity. It will soon be forgotten because it will be done through me, not through Jesus Christ. It would be, I would be as effective as a car with a clogged fuel gas line. I'd go for a while, and then I'd sputter out, and then I wouldn't be able to proceed because it's clogged, it's stuffed. And I'd be stuffed with a sin of arrogance and pride. And God's Spirit could not live in me and through me. And that applies not just to sermons, that applies to every part of life. It applies to the guy that you made at Burger King this next week, or your server at Applebee's, or your co-worker sitting next to you. Your relationship and my relationship with those around me, uh, family members, are we living in the flesh or are we living in dependence on Christ today that he may bear his fruit through us? That's how we live in triumph over sin and death. When we begin to reign with Christ and assume uh, what God has called us, how he's called us to live from the very beginning. So then Paul concludes this section with a summary of what we just spoke about, of this new life of righteousness that he offers through Christ. In verse 18, he says, Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone who would receive. Verse 19, Because one person disobeyed God, Many became sinners, but because one person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. And I'd like to finish with a picture of this new life that I read about this last week from Glenn McDonald. He showed this picture and he said, You're staring at, into the face of the most singularly unattractive creature. This creature begins its life as a knobby, spiky, multicolored organism that spends its time slithering through the forests of Sri Lanka, India, and Southeast Asia. And I found one of these babies in my basement. No, I didn't. <laughs> it begins its life as a knobby, spiky organism. And this is a picture of what our sin does to us. Do you remember a time... I, this is me now. Do you remember a time... In Christ, before Christ, I mean, when you felt unattractive like this creature. 
You know, you, you might look at the inward of your life and you feel the knobby warts of your cynicism or your inconsistent spiritual life or, or your, your spiritual impotence. And you think, oh God, I'm just so spiritually unattractive. <laughs> but then we heard that Christ offered us a better life. And then this creature will transform into what is known as the commander butterfly. Commanders are large butterflies with strikingly beautiful black, reddish, brown, and white wing patterns. Yet they begin as ugly caterpillars that appear custom designed for horror movies, our old sinful nature. There's nothing about the current morphology of this creature that suggests that it will ever take flight. But every cell from the inside out is stamped with the identity of a magnificent flyer. And when the time is right, it will mature into what it's meant to be. The same is true for anyone who leaves his life in Adam and begins his new life in Christ. Adam and Eve were created to reign, to triumph, to fly, so to speak. But when they sinned, they got their wings plucked. And they lost their purpose for which God created them. They lost their, and then they introduced pain and death to the world. But then God sent his son, the second Adam, to die on the cross for our sin. And in exchange, he offered us his gift of new life. And all who would receive this gift would receive their new wings. And they would learn to fly. That is, they would learn to triumph over sin and death. They would learn to once again reign with God, live through Christ. In verse 18, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the book of Romans, Lord, and how it clearly um, demonstrates the reason for which you came. It lays out the gospel chapter after chapter. It lays out our need for you, Lord, that we are sinners, we are fallen, and we fall short of your glory time and time again, and yet you didn't leave us in that desperate state. You came to us. You offered us an opportunity for a new life, uh, for new wings, uh, to live the way that you always intended for us to live in the beginning. Thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross dying the death that we deserve because of our sin and disobedience, and in exchange giving us your life, that we might not only live on earth, the life and purpose you have for us, but live for eternity. And so now, Lord, as we think of this, as we think of what you've accomplished on the cross, we now go to the table, this moment of communion, to fellowship with you, to meet with you, to examine our own lives, Lord, and to remember what you've accomplished for us on our behalf. In Christ's name, amen.